0: List. De la de de California Weather headlines for today, yes
1: Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in and get ready to meet a member of the revenue generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast. The CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell.
0: Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, where we members of the revenue generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today we're going to discuss the importance of change management and sales and marketing alignment. Joining us is Matt Hines, who is the founder and president of Hines Marketing, which helps B2B companies sell stuff, primarily by helping marketing teams embrace revenue responsibility and drive a predictable pipeline. Yesterday, Matt and I talked about sales and marketing alignment, and today we're gonna to continue our conversation to discuss change management to become a revenue-centric organization. Okay, here's my conversation with Matt Hines, the founder and president at Hines Marketing. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. So good to have you back. I wanna have a big conversation about sports. We can't, Matt, this is not a sports podcast, but the next best thing is change management to become a revenue-centric organization. So. What's the number one challenge facing organization that recognize the need to be revenue centric?
1: There is a large status quo infrastructure that exists, even in young organizations, even in those that haven't been around very long. And it goes like this. It's, you know, marketing focuses on the marketing of more, more likes, more retweets, more clicks, more MQLs. We have taught our teams that, you know, the most possible leads, the lowest possible cost is most important. It's not just that we've taught our teams this, it's our leadership teams expect this, our boards expect this. We have taught organizations to value the wrong metrics. And that doesn't mean that those metrics aren't important, it just means that those are leading indicators to the metrics that really matter. Separating your operational metrics from your impact metrics in marketing are what's most important. I think also many companies have a culture that whether they're doing it intentionally or not, sets up sales to be the be all end all and the independent revenue drivers. Meaning too many organizations, even if there are leads generated, sales believes they're on their own. They believe that what they get from marketing is a bonus and that they have to generate and close their own deals. And that is a culture that is perpetuated by leadership teams. It's perpetuated sometimes by the very boards that are managing both teams. So the idea that you need to sort of, that you need to create a culture change in these organizations. To not only change how they perceive marketing, how they measure marketing, but create a safe place for the very marketers themselves to reinvent their jobs is critical. I know we can go into a lot of kind of depth around that, but I mean, look, we do a lot of this work with clients. We help a lot of companies build more predictable pipelines. The playbook is is great, but if you create a playbook without addressing
0: the people and the change management required, it is likely going to fail. You will fail. You're going to fail unless you're really lucky. I was trying to be nice. So I agree with you. Agree with you. <laughs> you are hosed. You're completely <laughs> hosed. All right. So that makes a ton of sense. But I've got to ask we've, we've danced around this topic a little bit. What is a revenue centric organization? And what are the hallmarks of a revenue centric organization? Keto being a revenue
1: centric organization is more than just having everyone speak the same language, having everyone prioritize revenue events, you know, getting closed deals, getting renewals, increasing lifetime value, increasing the efficiency and and productivity and and profitability of your customer relationships. It's also accepting that there are going to be things that you can't precisely measure as part of that, that generating marketing's contribution to that enterprise deal cannot be summed up in a pay-per-click report. Right? Or any set of white paper downloads that the body of work required to get that deal done may not be perfectly measured, but the intent is more important than the precision of how you do that. Sometimes the most important metrics you're tracking and the most important metrics you're pursuing are those that are the hardest to measure. But it's not about getting the best measurement; it's about driving towards the right outcome. And it's having an organization that realizes that credit for the deal is beside the point that precise attribution of weighting of like which team gets the most credit, this is a body of work that takes multiple sources in the organization to get the deal done. And I believe when you've got an organization, you've got people and individuals who are making decisions based on revenue output versus vanity metrics, even if you can't measure everything, you will have a more efficient team. You will have organizations that are working more closely together on the right metrics, prioritizing and triaging the right work within that to
0: more efficiently hit your revenue numbers. So- Matt, I've got a little kind of pause happening in my head right now, right? So it's something i got to spit out for you here because I feel like every organization is revenue-centered. But what you're really saying is not revenue-centered per se, but it is functionally revenue-centered. We talked yesterday about how there can be such massive disconnects between marketing and sales in terms of what they're measuring, right? What you're talking about ultimately here is you're talking about a failure on two parts, but you're also talking about a failure of organizations to be able to embrace change, right? So recognition's the first piece. I recognize I have a problem. The second piece is the methodology to working my way out of the problem. But the first is how do I manage all the change that's got to occur? So what's that first step towards change? What's the first thing you have to think about from a change management standpoint? When you've had that recognition, you know you've got a problem. You're starting the project to making things better. What's the first thing you got to think about? Fear, fear,
1: fear. We talked earlier about that employee who's focused on the most possible leads at the lowest possible cost. So if you go back to that employee and say, you know what, I'm willing to spend 4X that on the right prospect. So does that mean different channels? Does that mean a whole different approach to search? Do we even need to use search anymore? Like you're sort of, you're you're saying we're recalibrating how we do work and you've just taken someone who was very successful and very good and very proud of the work they were doing. And now you've got that person wondering if they still have a job. They're wondering if they're going to be good at this new work you're asking them to do. And so the reason why people won't change, the reason why people stay at their status quo is because change is difficult, change is scary. And I don't know if I'm going to be successful on the other side of that change. I'm good at what I do now. I'd rather just keep doing what I do now. And that's why people push back. It's why they get defensive. It's why they say, well, I can make this work in this model. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. And so the reason I say fear is that if you assume that the people you're asking to change are fearful of the process and fearful of the outcome and fearful of their job and fearful of their livelihood, I mean, really, let's take it down to the bottom of the pyramid here, right, is to make it a safe place to do that, to admit to the team, we don't have all the answers. There's some benchmarks out there. There's other companies that have been do this. We're going to learn from what they've done and hopefully not make the same mistakes or the same amount of mistakes, but we are going to make mistakes. Holy crap, we're going to fail on some of this, right? And it is okay as long as we keep learning, as long as we keep moving forward. So you're not telling your team to fail, but you're telling them, I'm creating a safe place for you to learn, for us all to learn, to change the way we do things, as long as we keep talking, as long as we keep learning, and as long as we keep moving forward. So if you can take fear off the table for the people you're asking to change on sales and on marketing, you're going to have a team that more enthusiastically is willing to embrace this new ambiguous reality to figure out the right path forward. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, aren't most companies revenue-centric? Theoretically, yes. (laughs) Our most marketing and sales efforts, revenue centric, not always. (laughs) And so giving the team a safe space to make that transition and sort of, you know, know that the sausage is going to be delicious, but it may not be pretty how it's getting made. Give them that time and let them embrace the suck for a while.
0: So recognizing that change and especially change as radical as what we're describing will create fear. And maybe the most, the second most profound type of fear somebody could experience, which is the fear that their career is under threat, that their job is under threat. So one is recognizing people are going to be afraid of the change. And then it sounds like also giving them permission by saying, I don't know either. I don't have crystal clarity on the journey that we're going to take together. And I give you permission to fail. I give you permission to fail in the desire to change and change for the better. That makes a ton of sense. What else can people do to kind of help think about that change management process? What are the other hallmarks of recognizing and managing change? So we've gone into the the negative and talked about
1: fear. Let's take the opposite side. Let's talk about the hope. You know, in a previous marketing world where we're focused on the marketing of more, more clicks, more likes, more leads, your job as a marketer literally never ends. The checklist of things to do goes on forever. The more stuff you do, the better you feel because you're measuring output and volume, not results. So if you now, instead of focusing on volume, you're focusing on results, you start to triage the right things. You start to have the ability to take some things off of your list to not prioritize and instead do other things. Strategy is choosing. And if you decide which of those things are gonna drive the most impact, you're not chained to your desk doing as much as possible. You're focused on the right work that's actually delivering revenue results. I mean, I've seen companies go through this and I've seen it have a very direct materials impact on the trajectory of people's careers and lives. I've seen people say like, I can focus on the right things and I can do it with more control of time and place and I can have a bigger direct impact on my company and I can actually read a book at night instead of feeling like I have to do those next couple tasks, right? So the ability to now Focus in the right place and to really triage and be willing to let some things go because what you're doing is having a bigger impact and seeing the success of that on the revenue side. And maybe those other things that you weren't able to pick up, you say they're worth doing, but they're not more important than the other things. So that helps you get more resources, more staff. More budget to do those things. I mean, that's an exciting place to be. And instead of arguing about number of retweets or should we do more LinkedIn videos, it's not about the activity. It's like, is this driving revenue performance? And that's where you focus. And it's it really does change lives. Uh, I don't mean I don't mean to say this super superfluously. It really does change lives and trajectories for the people that are involved in that.
0: Okay, I like that counterweight. Right. So we we recognize that. There's a lot of fear we're generating because this is a pretty radical overhaul. At the same time, if we're doing this well, we're in a spot where you're actually doing less work and getting better results. Let's go back to something you mentioned yesterday that I I really thought was a brilliant idea, Matt, and that's this idea, I'm gonna call it a clean room, the sales and marketing clean room, right? It's Vegas for a day without the fun. We're gonna get together in a conference room and we're gonna basically admit there's a certain amount of stuff we just don't know about and there's a certain amount of, Clearing the air, you're not following up on the leads. The leads are bad, this type of thing, right? How much of this, in terms of your business, how much of this is a critical step? Or is this something that typically has already happened when you're showing up, Matt, going, it's time to move? Or is this a forcing factor for you? like, guys, you're going to get a conference room, you're going to work this stuff out.
1: Sometimes it's happened. I mean, some companies have a pretty open, transparent, collaborative culture already, where even if they're not focusing on the right things, they can at least talk about it. In other companies, and I'd say it's the majority of companies, the conversation hasn't happened. You know, it's an admission of weakness or failure if you if you say you're not doing something. It's considered weakness or considered a problem if you say, I don't know. In some companies I've literally seen, it's better to make something up and hope it's true than to say, I don't know. Well, now you're really in trouble, right? So, you know, it, having that clean room, having an amnesty day, having the ability to just like say what needs to be said uh, and, and 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 speak plainly and clearly about what is and isn't is a really important starting point. And it's not just on that clean room day. I mean, like three days later, something might come up. You need to be, it needs to be okay for everyone from the CEO to the CMO to the digital marketing manager to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question or we've never done that before or, you know, we've tried and we failed or, you know, we have something but it's not nearly sufficient enough. Like allow people to admit to each other that what you've done is not sufficient and make it in a place that we talked about sort of creating a safe place, make it create an environment where it is not only just okay to say those things, that it is rewarded and recognized. When you are rewarded for pointing out the things that you have done or may still be doing that are not productive, that are not successful, right? Um, And I think the more you can create an environment that sort of questions itself without malice, without fear of repercussions, the more likely you're going to have teams that are recognizing quickly what things, what isn't working, recognizing quickly programs that are not successful and making more rapid
0: adjustments to increase your velocity and success moving forward. Some scary stuff in there, right? Because we're talking about process change. We're talking about perspective change, but really at the core of what you talk about, Matt, is a cultural change. So there's a great catalyst, right? Somebody's recognized something. We've gotten together and we've set our piece and we've admitted to being uncertain. And now that that culture has been created, how do you nurture and perpetuate that culture? How do you get the leaders to keep that going?
1: Well, I think the, 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 the more from the topic comes, the better. I mean, it's one thing to have a CMO or your marketing leader, or your sales leader say it's okay to sort of have this honest dialogue. But if that's coming from the CEO, even better. If the leaders can exhibit that themselves, right? If you as a CMO can point out the places where in past jobs or ideally this job, we've not done things as adequately as we should have. If the CEO can do that as well, um, to point out to, so to lead by example that way, I think it's, that's a really important place to start. Um, uh, and I also think I mentioned earlier, you know, the idea of sort of recognizing and rewarding this behavior. You know, I mean, like, you know, just this is a simple thing with an organization is some it's not really related, but, you know, like we give people PTO time, we want them to take it. And when we, they take it, we don't want to hear from them. We reward people for exhibits of our values. And I've joked with people only half jokingly that if we hear from you while you're on PTO, I'm going to take one of those rewards away because it's really important. And like when I go on vacation, you're not going to hear from me either. So, you know, working by examples, you know, leading by example and the very things you're expecting your people to do is important. But I think also like recognizing and rewarding the positive and negative behavior. You know, I remember, you know, years ago, back when we didn't have the gongs and the courses of the world, we had some software where we could kind of listen in on different sales calls. And we had a habit of sort of writing up the good and the bad. And we would name the people doing the good and we would not name the people doing the bad. Right. We wanted to point out here's places we could improve, but not shame the people doing it. But we wanted to reward the people doing the successful things. Right. And so I think the more you create a habit of that recognition to continually improve and show people and in some cases, you may even give someone a reward for failing if you want to reinforce this process, right? So he said, you know, listen, so-and-so did this. It didn't work, but they owned up to it and they figured out a way to fix it. And we're already on the right track. Give them the Employee of the Week Award. Show the rest of the team that you are rewarding not the output right away, but the way we're doing work because that's part of the change that's going to get you to that
0: better place. Those are amazing tips. So I feel like I'm one of these marketers that's looking at this going, You know, I've had some of these experiences in the past and I love some of the tips I'm getting, but I'm also one of these marketers that's incredibly fortunate to be in a spot where I don't have misalignment. But one thing that absolutely drives me nuts, even in organizations that are revenue centric and really well aligned is when we don't think about the impact of customers. And I will say even the best organizations who think about their customers first and are customer centric and revenue centric, we host things up, right? We're too aggressive. We're too squishy with our messaging. There are things we do wrong. But I imagine that organizations that are not revenue centric are messier. In other words, the impact on the prospect and customer is poor. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, so many examples you can talk about, right? Like,
1: you know, I, I attend a webinar or I fill out, a, fill out a form to get a white paper and someone calls immediately and says, thanks for downloading the white paper. Would you like to see a demo? No, no, I downloaded <laughs> a white paper. As far as I'm concerned, transaction over. You got sales organizations that say, I need to follow up with leads within like three minutes. It's like, not if I downloaded a white paper, that's creepy. Like if I asked you for a demo, if I said, please contact me, calling quickly makes sense. But you don't have to do it as quickly with that, right? In fact, it may be counterproductive. When you think about the integrations of systems and how well, you know, things like think about, you know, if, 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 if someone else in my organization, like submitted some information on something and you started working that as a separate lead, as a separate opportunity, and weren't able to see that actually like they were, we sit 10 feet apart and we're at the same company and maybe working on the same exact problem. Like that's a problem. Like think about this from a consumer perspective. You call your cell phone company with a question and they ask for your account number, right? You give them their account number, they transfer you somewhere else. Now that next person asks you for the account number, right? It's really annoying. And I think we expect more as consumers now. We expect more. And most of the time we get that. I mean, the I think we take for granted sometimes the seamless service we get from many consumer organizations, but we bring those expectations into B2B. You know, so when the marketing team treats you as someone valuable who's learning, but the sales team treats you like another number and sort of calls you every day and emails you every day waiting for that demo, asking for that 15 minutes. That is a disjointed experience. At best,
0: it creates friction with you as a buyer, but at worst, it just drives you into the arms of your competitors. And so if you're a revenue-centered organization, let me wrap up a bunch of stuff, Matt, and I've talked about here. The first thing we described is the binary idea that if you're not revenue-centered, it's bad. Right. And we talked about all the misalignment that occurs and all the stuff that we've probably experienced in our career. We also talked about the hallmarks of organizations that are more revenue centered, at least their pathway to getting there. We talked about ICP. We talked about profoundly understanding the buyer's journey and inferred in there, by the way, is therefore understanding the customer. Those are the keys to becoming revenue centric in many ways. And therefore, I'd, I'd speculate and say that the companies that are revenue centric are more likely to be customer centric and therefore more likely to be kicking butt out in the marketplace. And so I will tell you one example for me, Matt, I'd be curious to see if there's others out there for you. Can't say lead data, by the way. Gong.io has always really impressed me. I'm gonna bring up Gong.io. They're one of my favorites. If you listen to the podcast, I'll probably round them up 10 times. Six Sense is another one. But I feel like Gong.io has done a really brilliant job of understanding their customer on a profound level. And so this is conversational intelligence software, right? This has really been a boon to more efficient sales organizations and frankly, Matt was probably created a situation where sales organizations know customers better because they're able to ingest this information. But I would posit and say that revenue centric actually means customer centric. And it means differentiated experiences that mean competitively, you're better. Matt, you're welcome. That's your pitch. I think that's slightly wordier than helping companies sell stuff. But would you agree that's ultimately where you land? It's not just revenue centricity, it's customer centricity, which makes you better. If you focus on what the customer needs and where the customer needs support, like the rest of it takes
1: care of itself. The better you understand what they're trying to achieve, the better you understand their pains, the better, you know, you don't want to ask them what keeps them up at night. You want to tell them what keeps them up at night. And the better you understand how they work. I mean, even to the point of understanding, like how they receive your stuff, Right. Like, you know, you you wanted the 15 minutes of their time and they're barely able to get through the day and, and pee every once in a while. Right. And so, you know, the idea that they're going to be able to respond to your email, like if you understood your customer well enough, you'd know that that's not the case. If you understood your customer well enough, you would know that, of course, they don't want a phone call three minutes after they downloaded the white paper. Right. If you understood your customer well enough, you would know that starting with words that start with I and we versus sentences that start with you and make it about their stuff first and earn the right to talk about what you have to do after they understand what the problem is. You would never think to sort of do it the opposite direction, which is counterintuitive. So you're absolutely right. The more you understand the customer, the more you will act on behalf of the customer, and the more likely your daily decisions, let alone long-term strategies, align and are naturally gonna drive more revenue in your direction.
0: So Matt, I mentioned Gong.io, and I have to say that's one person's opinion and perspective. And I'd say, I, I feel like Io gets me, right? And that's the way I would look at it and why I would describe them as being really good. Are there organizations you've run into that have that revenue and therefore customer centricity that you're impressed by? Well,
1: it's the customer centricity piece that I think really is interesting, right? And I think about companies where there's, there's a small number of companies over the years that that I think have, that have generated such such an intimacy with their customers that when when they get together, when employees get together with customers, it's more hugs than handshakes. I mean, Keller Williams in the real estate space. I mean, Keller Williams is one of the largest real estate brands in the world now, and they came out of nowhere because they they created a culture that cared. And for them, for the for the brokers, I mean, for the brand, their customer were the real estate agents and the brokers. They created such an amazing culture of understanding their customers. Their their annual conference is called Family Reunion. I mean, that's literally embedded in the culture, and it is a very authentic, amazing culture and created immense loyalty amongst their customers who, in, in a good real estate market, can go work anywhere. They can hang up their own shingle. They stay with Kelly Williams. Eloqua was the same way back You know when Eloqua first emerged and you sort of started seeing marketing automation tools. I mean, between, between the way they built their tools, the way they interacted with their customers, Eloqua Topliners was one of the best customer communities I've ever seen, because it, it was more than just a reduction in help desk tickets. It was meant as a way for customers to get to know each other. The commune part of community was a key part of what they did. I know many companies that didn't change vendors. They stuck with Elka not just because of the tool, because if they would have left Eloqua, they would, not would have left more than tools. They would have left their friends, friends in the community as well as at the company right? And so this isn't about being best friends with your customer, but it's about knowing your customer and having a relationship with your customer. So those are a couple examples that I think, you know, listen, those are long, those are, those are brand plays. Those are investments in, in, in things beyond just, you know, demand gen campaigns. But I think that's the better you create that loyalty and intimacy with your customer, the more often you get to talk to them more often you get to hear from them. And more often those voices impact everything from product And
0: roadmap and sales and marketing alignment, it just greases all the wheels. So, folks, that's it, really. That's the lodestar, ultimately. That's what we're talking about. Why would you go through the pain of interrupting your daily efforts on the marketing and sales side to recognize you have a problem? Well, you know, maybe there's a forcing factor. Maybe it's a board or a CEO. But if you're taking this on yourself, why would you go through the pain? Why would you go through the change management why enter clean rooms? Why deal with the fact that you're going to ultimately scare the heck out of some people and create this idea of career risk? Why go through all this? Well, ultimately, guys, you're propagating first a much more competitive go-to-market profile and a more competitively centered approach because ultimately you care about the customer, right? And you create, if you're doing this well, that care about customers, that revenue centricity creates a culture of change that leads to a culture of Keller Williams, right? Or Aliqua. Matt, thanks for bringing up Aliqua, by the way. I have to say, I remember when Aliqua was that community. And I, I also feel like Marketo kind of stole a page out of that playbook ultimately with the Marketo community. So we know that those are two dominant brands and so those strategies can be really successful. Matt, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime. This is fun. That's a lot of fun. All right. That wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Matt Hines, founder and president at Hines Marketing, for joining us. If you would like to contact Matt, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter where his handle is Heinz Marketing, or visit his company website at HeinzMarketing.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, shame on you, head over to the revgenpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't yet subscribed and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the week, week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't gonna generate itself.